You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. So when I was in college, uh, I drove uh, a car uh, that was, uh, it was one of those cars that was kind of a minor miracle uh, every time it was able to start. I'm sure many of you guys uh, have stories uh, that are similar to this. I'm sure many of you can relate to this. Uh, I believe it was a 1994 uh, Chevy Lumina. Uh, It had two doors. Uh, Neither of them worked. Uh, Both of the outside handles had actually broken off. Uh, So I took uh, shoestrings and I attached them to the inside handles and we put a little weight on the end of them and we just ran them through the door. Uh, So you just pull on the shoestrings and the doors would pop open. Uh, There was a spring in the driver's seat that had gone bad. Uh, So the driver's seat actually couldn't stand up on its own. Uh, It would just kind of flop back into the back seat. Uh, But instead of getting it fixed, uh, it was cheaper just to buy a two by four. Uh, So I just propped up the two by four uh, and, you know, put it in, in the back seat and the, the, the seat stayed up and that worked fine for the most part until there was one day I can remember I was driving down the highway near Hannibal and that two by four fell out uh, and I nearly fell into the back seat of my car while driving 60 mi- 65 miles down the highway. Uh, it, it was really one of those cars that was in such bad shape there were really only two logical decisions that you could make about it. There were so many issues with it, it really couldn't be repaired. So the two options were really replace the car or just ignore the problems. Uh, And I think most people seeing those two options would have agreed that this car needed to be replaced. Uh, But as a poor college student, mostly living off of ramen noodles, uh, it was much easier for me just to pretend that those problems didn't exist. I think the turning point for me was a day where I was driving back to my dorm room and I began having problems with the brakes. Uh, The car could speed up just fine. It was really good at speeding up. The problem was getting it to slow back down. Uh, And since I still didn't have money uh, for a mechanic, and when I finally did get the car to stop, I decided just to you know, cross my fingers and hope that maybe the brake fluid was just running a little low. Uh, so I bought a bottle of brake fluid because that was cheaper than going to a mechanic. And I topped off all the fluids. And I remember setting it down in the driver's seat and I was tapping on the brakes a couple of times, just hoping that the problem had somehow miraculously been fixed. Uh, And that's when I saw a literal fountain of brake fluid spray out the front of my car like a water gun. And I finally came to the realization uh, that maybe the problems with the car were actually more than I realized. And maybe this car really couldn't be repaired after all. Maybe it was time to replace it instead. Uh, We're going to see a a similar situation in Mark's gospel this morning, picking up where we left off. uh, Jesus 
is surveying the temple after he arrived to Jerusalem, and he's beginning to notice some problems of his own. God's people have ushered him in, thinking that he will save them uh, from their Roman oppressors. Uh, But as Jesus scouts out the city and as he peers into the temple, uh, he understands that the people actually face far deeper problems than just the Romans. Uh, The idolatry, uh, the wickedness of the Jewish establishment has become so rampant that there's no longer a simple fix, particularly in in regards to how they are treating the Lord's temple. So there are really only two options that remain. They can continue to ignore these worsening spiritual problems or they can let their hearts be replaced all together. But their confusing and convoluted religious system that is strayed so far away from the Lord's original design cannot last much longer as it is. The time has come for the old covenant to pass away and for the new and better covenant of Christ to take its place. So let me read our text. And then let's just see how bad this problem really is and what Jesus intends to do about it. So Mark chapter 11, starting there in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes That what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, uh, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So this sermon series on the last few chapters of Mark's gospel uh, is called Jesus in Jerusalem, uh, the last week in the life of Christ. 
And if you're trying to figure out exactly where we are in that last week, uh, the triumphal entry took place uh, on a Sunday. That's why we celebrate Palm Sunday in our churches every year. Uh, And the events that we're studying now took place the very next day on Monday. So there are only four days left to the crucifixion. It is quickly approaching. And as you look at the story, you'll notice that it breaks down into three scenes. Scene number one involves Jesus's encounter with a fruitless fig tree. Then wedged inside of that is this second scene where Jesus enters a fruitless temple. Uh, you, you see that this temple has is become just as spiritually barren as that fig tree was physically barren. And then there's a last scene which contrasts the first two where Jesus will teach his disciples what it means to be fruitful. So a fruitless tree, a fruitless temple, but fruitful disciples. So let's go ahead and talk about the fig tree first, because if you understand that story, it'll actually help you understand everything else. That's actually why Mark puts the stories of the the tree and the temple back to back so that the first one can help you interpret the second. It's a common storytelling technique that Mark uses a lot. So first, this scene with this fruitless tree kind of an unusual scene. Mark says that Jesus and his disciples, they slept outside the city again in Bethany. Uh, But as they come into Jerusalem, Jesus is hungry. Now, I'm not sure why he hasn't already eaten anything, uh, but Jesus comes into the city hungry and lo and behold, off in the distance, there is a fig tree in bloom. But it has no fruit. Though we're told that it's not even the season for figs either. I mean, in Palestine, uh, fig trees uh, don't typically uh, fully bloom and bear fruit until the fall, and it's spring. So, of course, there are no figs on it. And you wouldn't think that this would be such a big deal. I mean, surely this one tree isn't the only place where somebody can go get breakfast. And since it's not even fig season, you think that Jesus wouldn't be bothered by it not having any figs. Yet in verse 14, Jesus says to this tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the fig tree. It's like Jesus was so hungry that he's become hangry. Like he is very upset here. And this first story has actually baffled uh, many readers and those who have studied this passage for years, uh, because it it really is such a strange story. I mean, all of Jesus's miracles up to this point have been ones of healing, making the blind see, the lame walk, uh, helping the deaf to hear. So it, it almost seems a waste of Jesus's powers just to curse a simple tree, especially if it's not even the season where figs typically uh, bear fruit. But that's what Jesus does. And if you jump down to verse 20, we're told that the next day when they pass by the tree again, 
They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, there are some scholars who say that that Jesus wasn't actually expecting uh, ripe figs on this tree uh, because he knew it wasn't the right season. So he didn't curse the tree because it didn't have ripe figs on it, but he did curse the tree because there weren't any figs that had even started to grow. Uh, In the spring, though the figs shouldn't yet be fully ripe, most of the fig trees at least had begun that process of bearing fruit. And even that immature fruit was still edible and good to eat. Uh, But then there are other scholars who have studied this, uh, and these are people that are much more knowledgeable about trees than myself. Uh, They've taken kind of a a different approach. They've said, no, 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 fig trees uh, don't usually bear fruit until the fall, but the time of year actually doesn't determine whether a fig tree should have fruit on it. Uh, The presence of leaves determine that. If there are leaves, then there should be fruit. And since verse 13, uh, we're told that this tree was in leaf, then that means that even though it was only spring, there actually should have been ripe figs on this tree. But it didn't have any, and that's why Jesus was right to be upset. Uh, But whatever explanation you want to, to offer, this is what is clear. This fig tree was alive. It had leaves, but it was not doing what the Lord had designed it to do. It wasn't bearing fruit when its creator thought it ought to be doing so. And so it wasn't fit for anything else but to be cursed and to die and to be used as wood for the fire. Because fruitless fruit trees have no purpose in the plans of God. Which means that we should ask ourselves, what about fruitless Christians? If Jesus walked up to you and he saw that your life was just as barren as this fig tree, what would his attitude be towards you? That there are some Christians who think that Jesus should be happy Uh, Just because you've decided to become his follower, you've submitted yourself to him, uh, his spirit has brought your soul back to life, uh, and that really should be enough. But merely existing is not enough. Jesus isn't satisfied with your existence. He wants evidence of your fruit. The Lord isn't happy just because our church can pay the bills and keep the lights on. He's not satisfied just because we're able to continue to gather together Sunday after Sunday. His delight comes from knowing that we are growing in holiness. He smiles at the thought of his spirit that that it is producing acts of righteousness within us. Uh, He is overjoyed only when he sees the gospel seeds that have sprouted in us 
being scattered throughout our community. That's what matters. So Jesus is upset uh, because he saw a fruit tree uh, that was barren of the very thing that it was meant to produce. And I just want you to, to keep that in the back of your mind as we move through this next scene, because that'll help you interpret Jesus's actions inside the temple. The real purpose of the first story is just to help you better understand the second. So let's talk about this fruitless temple, a place that has become just as spiritually barren inside as that tree was outside. And Jesus is cleansing of the temple. Uh, This is one of the most fascinating stories to me in the gospel, uh, because this is really one of the most un-Jesus-like things that Jesus could do. I mean, just cursing this fig tree seems weird enough, but Jesus clearing out the temple uh, is is even more unusual and weird in in many ways. You know, it's kind of like if you're ever playing that two truths and a lie game, uh, and if I were telling you, oh, well, you know, Jesus healed uh, this one person and Jesus teached in this synagogue, and then, oh yeah, Jesus also flipped over some tables and shooed a bunch of people out of the temple. I mean, if you didn't already know that this story was in the Bible, uh, you might be tempted to think that I was just making it up, especially with the way that we often portray Jesus in pictures and in film. Uh, He's so often seen as soft-spoken and kind of the most mild-mannered guy around. Uh, Like in some pictures that uh, that I've seen or or, your films that I've seen with Jesus, uh, that guy doesn't look like he could flip over a table even if he wanted to. But, But the truths of the Bible are so much more interesting than our own imagination. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus not only cleansed the temple once, uh, but he actually did it twice. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus clearing out the temple at the end of his ministry. But if you read the Gospel of John, he lets you know that he also did it at the beginning of his ministry as well. He ran off the merchants, but three years later, they're back. So it's time to do it all over again. So starting in verse 15, we're told that he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Uh, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all of the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So so what exactly is going on in this second scene? Well, the courtyard that Jesus was in was known as the Gentile court. Uh, It was kind of the outermost courtyard of the temple, and it was pretty large. Uh, Some estimates say that it covered approximately 35 acres, and this outer court was the closest that any non-Jew could ever get to the presence of the living God. 
And originally, as Jesus says, the temple was meant to be a place of prayer for the nations. This temple was a place to pray for the world and to act as a beacon of light so that the nations would come and gather at this very spot. It was intended to be a diverse hub of activity, almost looking like a meeting of the United Nations. But in reality, that we, we see here that it's begun to look a lot more like the New York Stock Exchange instead. Uh, Jews came from far away lands for Passover. Uh, it wasn't always easy to bring your own sacrificial animals for the journey. Uh, so instead the temple began to uh, conveniently offer these animals for sale, just not at such a convenient price. Uh, We actually have documented reports from one year around this time period uh, showing the number of animals that were slaughtered at that temple just over uh, the course of Passover. Uh, And in one year, just on Passover, they slaughtered 255,000 lambs, uh, many of which would have been purchased uh, for outrageous prices directly from uh, those working at the temple. Uh, This was a big business for them. And those traveling far distances also had to convert their foreign currencies into shekels once they arrived also at not-so-convenient exchange rates. So those in charge of the temple were preying on those who they were supposed to be welcoming in. And if all of that wasn't enough, Mark even notes that Jesus had to stop those trying to carry goods through the temple. That The outer court was so large that the temple leaders often opened it up to allow local merchants to take shortcuts through it, rather than making them go all the way around. So there was so much happening within these walls, it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for a Gentile to use this space for any actual worship. It was already being used too much to worship at the altar of greed and commerce. So that's why Jesus responds to this situation in righteous anger. He is mad enough that he halts traffic to all of the incoming merchants. Uh, His temper is such that he begins to flip over the tables and the seats of those selling uh, sacrificial animals Uh, And it's not mentioned in Mark, but in John's gospel, uh, he says that Jesus even made a homemade whip to help drive everyone out. He is livid. So, So what are we to learn from this? First, it shows that sometimes anger is the answer. Uh, If we are modeling our lives After Jesus, that means inevitably there should be certain things in life that make you mad. The the entire spectrum of human emotions were created by the Lord, and there are appropriate occasions for each of those emotions, including righteous anger. I mean, when you think about the atrocities of abortion, 
the horrors of human sex trafficking, the rampant cases of sexual abuse flooding our churches, these things should make us angry. We have a right to be righteously irate about these issues. In fact, if there aren't any moral travesties that make you mad, that should actually be the red flag. That should be the sign that you have been lulled into a complacent sleep by the soft sound of the enemy's lullaby. So sometimes anger is the answer. But second, this means that we must always assess the reasons for which we are gathering, lest we ever turn this house of worship into a den of robbers. When we gather to worship Jesus, we must constantly evaluate our motives to make sure that that's precisely what we are doing, that we have come here for the sole purpose of worshiping Jesus alone. And when Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers, uh, he's actually quoting from Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, he writes this. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go out after gods that, that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Both in Jeremiah's day and in the time of Jesus, the temple had become a place for, to worship everything uh, but the Lord. It, it was a structure centered around worldly sin rather than godly worship. So, so let us make sure that our Sunday school classes and Bible studies uh, do not become places for uh, coffee and gossip, but rather are places where we seek the gospel of Jesus. Let us never be more concerned about our church's finances than we are our church's faith. May this pulpit never be a place for politics, and may uh, we never gather to worship any president, any political ideology, or anything but Jesus Christ alone. There are many ways to turn a house of worship into a den of robbers, so let us be careful to avoid them all. So we've looked at the fruitless tree and this equally fruitless and spiritually barren temple. But lastly, let's look at the third scene from this story. Because despite the tree and despite the temple, the Lord clearly holds out hope for bearing fruitful disciples. 
Uh, the next day, after the disciples have the opportunity to process all that had just happened, uh, and after they see that that fig tree that had been cursed it has withered away, uh, just as Jesus said, uh, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about everything that is going on. At verse 22 there, he says, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask in prayer, uh, believe that you received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So what's Jesus' goal in his teaching in this final scene? What Jesus is doing here is preparing his disciples for what's to come. Their world is going to drastically change not only in the upcoming days, but also the upcoming years. Uh, In AD uh, 70, during their own lifetime, the Romans will come in and besiege Jerusalem and destroy this temple. And it will forever lie in ruins. Even today, you can go and still visit the rubble. All that is left is the temple's uh, foundation, So soon this religious and cultural centerpiece for the Jews will be gone. But it also won't be needed. And that's because of the destruction of a different temple. John chapter 2, after Jesus cleared out the temple the first time, he promised to destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. And the Jews said... It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This temple in Jerusalem will no longer be needed because the temple of Jesus' body will soon be destroyed, and three days later it will be resurrected. And that resurrection will usher in a new covenant with it. And under this new covenant, God's people will no longer have to travel great distances to Jerusalem to be near the presence of God. The presence of his spirit will dwell directly within each and every one of them, empowering them to be full of spiritual fruits. And their faith will give them strength to do the seemingly impossible. That's what Jesus is talking about in these final verses. Not that they will literally be able to do whatever they want, because if you remember Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not even Jesus received everything that he asked and prayed for. Uh, He asked to be spared the cup of the Father's wrath and for it to pass from him, But since that wasn't part of the Father's will, Jesus still had to drink that bitter cup down to its very dregs. So Jesus here isn't telling his disciples 
that they will be able to move literal mountains and cause them to come crashing down into the sea. But he is saying that when you are praying the Father's will, you will see the miraculous. You aren't always promised health and wealth. Uh, but if you look at the context of these verses, especially verse 25, you'll understand that seeing God the Father forgive you and having faith that you can be empowered by him to forgive others who have wronged you, those are the equivalent of seeing entire mountain ranges uprooted and pushed to the side. Faith and forgiveness are miracles within themselves. So, so unlike the cursed uh, fig tree that was withered up, unlike the broken and barren temple, Jesus wants you to be filled with his spirit and to see the miraculous fruit that will be produced as a result. So we should be thankful for our Savior's cursing of that fig tree and for his act of righteous anger. Uh, even though the cheers from his triumphal entry are slowly devolving into jeers, uh, we have reason to find hope in his actions. The, the crowds that ushered him in uh, are beginning to now want him to leave Jerusalem but in seeing Jesus gut the house of God and confront their greed, we're already seeing a glimpse of the old covenant pass away. Because Jesus didn't come as a mechanic offering quick fixes and easy repairs. He came to offer something far better. He came to give us a new covenant and to be a new temple for which to offer himself as our sacrifice and to replace our hearts all together if we will only submit to him. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the arrival of Christ in Jerusalem. Uh, thank you for the zeal that, that he had in the temple and in your house. Uh, may we also just be a people marked by uh, that same kind of zeal uh, and passion. Uh, may we always seek to use this house of worship uh, for purposes of worshiping you and you alone, Father. Um, I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.